The business of culture, the culture of business, creatives, media and technology, markets and policy, rock stars. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. It meant that I had to take roughly a 50% pay cut from doing what I was doing to then taking this on-camera reporting job at New York One. They used to call them one-man bands. Now they call them multimedia journalists, which meant that I carried all of my gear covering the White House, covering uh, the Supreme Court on big decision days, covering all of the agencies, covering Capitol Hill. And when I would have an interview or when I would have to do a live report, I would have to set up everything on my own, set up the camera, set up the audio, set up the lights, make sure if there was a live connection that that was working, and then do my report. PBS NewsHour anchor Jeff Bennett's winding career journey, which just barely avoided strapping cash to his body to pay news stringers in Cuba, Miami Vice style. No, seriously, young journos, take notes and take heart. He's ours for the hour. Stay tuned. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. DM me to carry full disclosure on your air. Joining me from D.C., welcome back to the show, good sir, Jeff Bennett, anchor of PBS News Weekend. He's chief Washington correspondent for PBS NewsHour, previously at NBC News, previously a congressional and White House correspondent at NPR, prior to that at, at Time Warner Cable, New York One, and uh, produced me at NPR's Weekend Edition back in the day, less than a decade ago. How are you, sir? Yeah, I'm doing great. How are you? It's great to be back with you, Robin. Thank you, Jeff. I want to tell that story because I remember um, it was at some point, I think, in the spring of 2013. You were wonderful to work with at Weekend Edition. You actually held my hand, introduced me to people like Michelle Martin back in the day with Tell Me More and and other programs. And you told me that, look, this will be the last time I'm working with you here because I'm going off to pursue my dream of becoming a, a TV correspondent. And uh I was pulling for you, and I remember New York One at Time Order Cable, but how did that all start, and how did your career start? I mean, take me back to Morehouse. Yeah, well, interestingly enough, at, at Morehouse, there was no journalism program, so I majored in English, and I worked on the school newspaper to get as much practical experience as I possibly could, the Maroon Tiger. And my senior year, I was editor-in-chief of the paper. And I also had a number of really great internships. So at school, I was a member of the National Association of Black Journalists. And someone working in the talent development team at ABC News at the time named Nisa Walton Booker, she was a recent Spelman graduate. And so, you know, I had gone to NABJ, which is this huge convention, and it's filled with these booths. And all of the major news outlets show up, and they send, you know, one or two representatives. And then what you see are all of these young journalists with their resumes freshly printed, going from booth to booth, trying to find the best fit. And I grew up outside of Philadelphia, uh, in South Jersey, Voorhees, New Jersey. And the reason I mention that is because even to this day, Philadelphia is one of the strongest news markets in the country. And so, you know, as a kid, the way that I knew it was time for lunch was because Lisa Thomas-Laurie would come on at noon on, <laughs> on Channel 6, Action News. And so I grew up watching ABC. I grew up watching Peter Jennings. 
And, you know, fast forward to this job convention, I went to the ABC booth and was hoping that I would get an internship. And it all worked out. Got an internship. Uh, the first summer I worked for Carol Simpson's show. Um, she was a, was a, or Carol Simpson, of course, is the first black woman to ever anchor a network news broadcast. And so she took me under her wing the following year after I graduated. I got a full time job working on that show and ultimately found my way to ABC News World News Tonight with Peter Jennings as a desk assistant, which basically is a glorified way of saying copy boy. <laughs> so desk assistants really are the, are the lifeblood of any news organization. They are the folks who print the scripts, who um, answer the phones, who, who yes, will often get and deliver coffee, but it is the best way to fully understand how a news organization works. You are at the sort of the ground floor. And I did that for, for a number of years, for about three or four years. Uh, and, and left as an associate producer. And so I feel like in many ways, the experience I got at ABC, learning from Carol Simpson, who to this day is very much a mentor of mine, watching Peter Jennings at work, um, seeing him edit, copy in real time, you know, change scripts to either be in his own voice or to better capture the news of the day. I think, you know, that was invaluable. And just being at a place and at a network that really valued news coverage as a public service and less so as a business enterprise, I think really uh, was invaluable. Were you hankering to become talent or how would you even get a shot? Uh, they didn't have streaming channels back then. Online wasn't nearly as developed. There wasn't a kind of a skunk works to show yourself on digital. Right. And, and it's a great point that you make because back then everything was very much siloed. So if you were a producer, you were on the producer track. If you wanted to be an editor, you were on the editor track. If you were on the talent track, that was the track that you were on. And back then, and when I say back then, this is the early aughts, you know, if you wanted to be a network correspondent, the way to do it was to go to a local market and work your way up. And even producers who wanted to be on air, right, I mean, right. it was verboten that you would ever say that <laughs> if you were head of network. So what I chose to do, even at the time I knew that I wanted to, to do reporting, it was less so about being on air, it was more about wanting to do reporting. And, and actually practice the craft of, of journalism, I wasn't entirely sure how to go about doing it. I knew that I didn't want to move to a small market, having lived in New York by that point for about five or six years. The idea that I was going to uproot all of that and, and move out to, you know, the sticks of some small town and sort of work my way up and hope that someone somewhere um, saw what I was capable of doing, that just didn't seem like the right path for me. And so instead, what I did was I took a different job at AOL, AOL television. And so for a year, oh, wow. <laughs> for a year, I was an entertainment reporter. And the reason I mention this is, is, is for young journalists who may not know exactly what they want to do. They don't really understand how to, how to go about doing it, how to carve a path for themselves. I would say, especially in the beginning of your career, take any opportunity that is available to you that one is pays. Like I wouldn't, for, for, for young journalists in particular, I, I don't advise ever taking unpaid internships, <laughs> but take any opportunity that is available to you that sort of expands your horizons. And so that's what I did. I, I did a year of entertainment reporting, hated it, but at least I knew that I hated it. And then from there, um, course corrected and found my way back to national politics. So were you able to get, I mean, even in the infancy of AOL at this point was being spit out the whole Time Warner merger was a disaster. It had so much promise because it was technically a cousin of CNN and you could get it in all these other magazine properties, Fortune and the like, but they were intensely siloed. If you thought, you know, 
Cap Cities ABC Disney was. Did this get you any on-air opportunities, or did you try your hand at radio or, I mean, back in the day, we didn't have webcams or anything else, or iPhones, you'd have to go out with a whole crew. Yeah, but no, but what it did was it gave me opportunities to interview a lot of people and a lot of celebrities and to sort of hone that the interviewing skills that I hadn't really had a chance to do previously. And, and the reason I say, you know, I didn't, I didn't enjoy the work was it had nothing to do with the, the, my colleagues or, or the employer. It was, I knew that I, as I'm, you know, interviewing Vanessa Williams about Ugly Betty or Dennis Haysbert about 24, that was the big show that was on at the time. Yeah. I was only really vaguely interested in their answers. <laughs> and that was, it had nothing to do with them. It was just more that, you know, that wasn't what I felt called to do. It, well, entertainment reporting wasn't really what I thought was the best use of my skills. I, I'd always really been most interested in, in politics. Um, but, but at the time that I had left ABC, I didn't really see a, a path for forward movement. And by the time I left ABC, I was also doing digital producing for World News Tonight. Um, I was part of the founding team that launched what is now ABC News Live. And to give you a sense of the early days of that, um, our team couldn't get the chroma keying right. So our anchor at the time, God bless her, had this green halo around her oh. head all the time. <laughs> Because it was so early days of, I guess it wouldn't even be streaming at that point, but it was early days of news content available whenever you'd want it on demand online. Um, but at the time, I just couldn't chart a path forward. And that's why I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to stay in this digital space, um, AOL is, at the time was the best of brand. And, you know, they had opportunities to, to do more at least a reporting, I wouldn't necessarily call it journalism, but certainly more reporting. And, that, and that's why I took that leap. Jeff, this reminds me of a bit of sink or swim. Uh, during business school, I took a fellowship and internship at the New York Times. And while it was great to kind of be in the belly of the beast and go chasing jurors, I think in the Enron trial and everything else with Andrew Ross Sorkin, it was on balance for me an alienating and unpleasant experience because uh, you, you realized uh, after about a few days that it was sink or swim. They wanted to see how maybe Machiavellian and resourceful you could be at enterprise reporting, at fact checking, at juggling all these things. One of the dilemmas for the young, ambitious journalist in a major market is how do you do the, you know, fact checking and the reporting and the coffee getting and everything and get the time to, to shine yourself for the big enterprise pieces? Yeah, it, it, it's a it's a really good question. And I think that is the toughest thing about being a young producer is one, doing the work that is required of you, which can sometimes feel like you're doing, you're, you're just spinning your gears and all of this work of is sort of going into of the ether. Or you're doing great work and someone else is getting the credit for it. That in many ways is sort of the, <laughs> that's what one does as a producer. But yeah, it really is difficult to to stake your claim and get out there. I will tell you, um, I was at ABC during... <clears throat> Um, one of the blackouts. I think it, it was would have been the blackout of August of two thousand three. I was there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll never forget it because I walked from Sixty Sixth Street in Manhattan to my house at the time. Uh, walk up in a brownstone in Clinton Clinton Hill, Brooklyn. So that <laughs> that was a, <laughs> That's a long a four walk. or five hour walk. I'll never forget. But we knew that there were people. There were there were subway cars that were stuck stuck underground. Yeah. And the assignment desk wanted people to basically go into the subway tunnels and find these <laughs> find these stuck passengers and put a camera on them. And so there were opportunities like that where you could raise your hand and say, I'll do it. Or uh, if you wanted to have, and I'm not exaggerating here, have cash strapped to your body 
and then be flown to Cuba to pay the stringers <laughs> who at the time <laughs> were in Cuba and couldn't get paid through uh, traditional banking systems. There were opportunities like that to, to show your medal. <laughs> I never I never signed up for that, but that's that's kind of how it was back then. It was it was it was it comparison to now was freewheeling. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Jeff Bennett. He is, of course, anchor of PBS News Weekend. You've seen him host NBC News, MSNBC. He's the chief Washington correspondent, additionally for PBS NewsHour. Jeff, so what happened after AOL? Did did uh, NPR make the pitch to you? Yes, in fact. Uh, one of my friends, uh, who was Betsy Stark's producer for the business unit at ABC, uh, while I was at AOL, she had gone to NPR and was executive producing a show out there, a, a news and public affairs show called News and Notes with Farai Chidea. Oh, yes. And yeah, it was based out of Los Angeles. And this, for me, was my chance to go live in LA, which imagine being, you know, mid to late 20s, having lived in New York and then taking a job in LA. It was, it was, it was great. But the thing about that staff, and I was on that show for, uh, I had say about two or three years before uh, the economy collapsed. It was the Great Recession and NPR um, basically shuttered NPR West and then uh, canceled all of the shows that emanated from that bureau apart from uh, the staff that was there for, for Morning Edition and All Things Considered. Um, but the two or three years I was with that program, I think, were really affirming in that, you know, it was a young staff. It was a brand new show. And it was one of the few situations in which you could look at a broadcast, look at our rundown each day, and that rundown would be reflective of the staff behind it. That doesn't always wow. happen. Sure. But the staff was young. It was diverse. And I think the, one of the greatest points of pride in that show was that we brought our full selves to work and all of that showed up in the broadcast. Um, and, you know, Farai is a brilliant mind and was a great a great host to work for. Learned a lot from her. Now, you got a chance to be talent, of course. Talent used, I think, by agents, by TV producers, by, you know, in the in the, in the the parlance of ABC and Cap Cities that you weren't just behind the scenes now. You got a chance to get a mixer and actually record and report. Yeah, that's right. And, and, to, get, and to get used to hearing my own voice, my own broadcast voice on the radio, um, to get a sense of how to write sort of in my own style as opposed to writing for someone else because until up until that point that's pretty much all I had ever done was learning how to adjust good broadcast writing for the host or anchor that I was producing for um, and that got me closer to the reporting that I'd always wanted to do so by this point I was I don't know I'd say eight to ten years in my career still wasn't doing reporting under my own byline but was getting closer and closer to it now I want to take you on a little bit of a tangent here a little bit of a detour we look at NPR and it's had many reckonings, all of media, all of media with Me Too um, in the wake of George Floyd, everything that happened in uh, in 2020 and 2021. And now we're talking about the great resignation. You fast forward, NPR had some great advances. Of course, it dropped the show Tell Me More, which I loved and I was a regular on. And I remember crossing paths with you uh, in the NPR mothership when I was doing that. But the brain drain of people of color, whether you look at Sam Sanders or you look at Audie Cornish or uh, uh, Lulu Garcia Navarro, the people that have left, I believe NPR likes to say that it's a function of their excellence, their primacy, and the fact that for-profit news outlets have a lot of money to poach. But I, I can't get over the fact that it just lost this huge brain trust 
of great voices of color who had quite a following. And because you mentioned Farai Chidea and how, you know, I, I think you go back and you read the coverage of WNYC's troubles and how she was done wrong or Adoro Doji, and that's kind of still ongoing. And I, I mean, I, I know we're going to get back to your experience at NPR where you were recruited to come back and be a reporter, but what is going on? Yeah, I will say I had a very different experience than did some of my colleagues of color working at NPR. I think NPR is an incredible incubator of talent across the board. It has not been as good at retaining talent. And that's certainly true of talent of color. There are people who say that the that the, the culture of the place, even as they say that they want to be forward leaning and progressive, I don't mean progressive in a political sense, but um, uh, progressive and in- inclusive, that the, the culture is still very much passive aggressive to a large degree. And there are people who don't thrive in, in, in those environments. And when other opportunities are made available, and oftentimes they're better paying opportunities, pe- people jump at those opportunities. And that has been true of, of young talent. It's been true of diverse talent. NPR says that they are, are trying to be better about this. But I will tell you, Robin, I started working at NPR in, I'd say, 2006. And there have been, I've lost count of the number of diversity initiatives that they've had over the years, all of which I think are well-intentioned, not necessarily well-executed, but this has been something that they have been focusing on and talking a lot about. And I've worked at a number of, of, of news organizations by now, none of which has has focused as much on this diversity issue as NPR has. And the, the fact that they haven't been able to get it right, and that's not me saying that. I think a lot of NPR executives would say that they have more work to do. Of course, every news organization has more work to do. But the fact that they haven't been able to address this issue in, in a way that has been, I think, meaningful it raises a lot of questions. I mean, Shirin Marisol Miraji, these people I think that you believe you, you introduced me to at Code Switch, which was an award-winning podcast, which got national national publicity, which was a struggle to get kind of pushed through the system. And then and, and member stations ended up picking it up. I mean, just the 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 number of people who walked away from these things. Um, you are friends with Audi. I know CNN Plus didn't go anywhere, but hopefully they can restaff her. And I, I actually got to say selfishly, I miss their voices. I miss, I miss, you know, I, I was, I, I, I came to the system. I got used to it. I love listening to, um, uh, to Lulu, to Audie, to Shireen, uh, to Sam Sanders. He became such a cornerstone, such a fixture. And then that goodwill, that experience just walks away. I, I still can't get over it because I know it's somewhat inside baseball. I know the bigger story here is the great resignation and people getting antsy and some of these headlines in the news, you know, were depressing. You know, I I think also about who was it in who was it in Morning Edition who walked away. I love her voice. Oh, uh, Noel 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 King, and yes, and the New York Times and Vox and others are competing with NPR now. But gosh, I don't know if I'm going in circles about this. There there are people like you who came up through the system, who knew about mentoring, who got fortunate with people like Carol, and I feel like there are other people who achieved some sort of stardom who were orphaned. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's a great point, and everyone. Everyone leaves for their own reasons. And I have I left NPR well before Audie and Sam and, and, and Noel and all those other great folks you mentioned left. And I haven't spoken with each of them about their own reasons for leaving. I will just say that and and I hope that NPR realizes fully what they've lost by allowing all of these great 
voices and people who have deep connections to the audience to walk out the door. They're irreplaceable. The other thing that I think that people don't fully understand is that it takes a lot of time and talent. One, to develop a broadcast skill and develop sure. your to, to develop your so-called radio voice or your broadcast voice, but then to do it in a way that is fully yourself. Sam and Audie certainly did that. And Noel did that too. And that's, see, that's why I'm heavy hearted about this because that stuff is not just, you know, they say in baseball, the mercenary statistics win above replacement. You could always pop a younger associate producer or something into it, but that goodwill with the producer, the voice, the, the gut, everything that it took, you know, upwards of a decade to create just walked away. That's right. And I think NPR in losing them is losing some of the, the standards, some of the the broadcast standard that we've become accustomed to in listening to hosts and, and correspondents. You know, these brilliant folks are not replaceable. Jeff Bennett, 2013, uh, Time Warner Cable, New York One came knocking. I mean, that was an interesting network foot in the door. I, 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 you know, as being a Manhattanite for the first decade of this century, I remember that that was an important thing for Time Warner Cable. I don't even know if it's called Time Warner Cable anymore. It's probably Charter or something else. But they wanted to say, as opposed to the other providers, right, we offer New York One, which is news on the one. And it was kind of an institution unto itself. How did that call come to you when you were producing at Public Radio? Yeah, it's funny. By this point, my wife and I had our had our son and I thought, well, if I don't do this reporting thing now, I'm never going to do it. So over the course of a weekend, I flew to Atlanta, hired a retired CNN photographer and shot a reel. And for the unfamiliar, especially if you're going to work on local television, you kind of have to, you have to have a reel. So it's almost like you would have if you're trying to be a, a you know music artist, you have to have a demo tape. And over the course of a weekend, we, sh we shot a bunch of stories. Um, because what I didn't have, even though by this point I've been working in the business, I don't know, for 10 to 15 years, it feels like, I didn't have a tape of me on camera really doing anything. Uh, so I brought this tape back. So hold up, hold up. This is this is you truly investing in yourself. Would you dip out of savings to hire a camera person and kind of fake it, fake it till you make it? Exactly. Brought the tape back and then shopped it around to all of the uh, news directors here in Washington, D.C. And so that was a matter of sending cold emails, which usually don't get responses, Response, but, yeah. but I got a couple of responses. And there was one response in particular from the general manager of a station who spoke with me because he saw NPR on my resume and he used mm. to work at NPR eons and eons ago. And so he brings me in and he says, you know, I saw your tape. I think you're good. I think you're smart, but I can't hire you because I could never justify to my bosses why I'd have to pay you what I'd have to pay you in a DC market when you know nobody knows who you are and you don't have any on-camera experience apart from this tape you just made. But he says, oh. he says, but there's this job at New York One that I know about that would allow you to stay in D.C. You could continue covering national politics and you could get all of the on-the-job training that you're looking for, but they're not going to pay nearly as much. And so what it meant for me taking that job, and I say this as a hopefully an instructive thing for for young journalists and aspiring journalists who might be listening to this, is that it meant that I had to take roughly a 50% pay cut from doing what I was doing, basically on the management track by this point at NPR, to then taking this cub reporter job, uh, on-camera reporting job at New York One, working as, uh, they used to call them one-man bands, now they call them multimedia journalists, which meant that I carried all of my gear around Washington, covering the White House, covering uh, the Supreme Court on big decision days, covering all of the agencies, covering Capitol Hill. And when I would have an interview or when I would have to do a live report, I would have to set up everything on my own, set up the camera, set up the audio, set up the lights, 
make sure if there was a live connection that that was working, and then do my report. And you're a new father, and you took a fifty yeah. percent pay cut. Yeah. And your wife was your wife was okay with this. Yes, and luckily she she previously had worked in the business, the news business, and so under had a had a deeper understanding of all this stuff than I think anybody who hadn't worked in the news business would have had. Um, and so that was hugely helpful. So here's the deal, Jeff. Back then, again, we're talking 2013, and this is still, you know, NPR is not quite a digital native. Everything is about the member stations and all things considered in Morning Edition. There wasn't any mechanism internally to say, you know what, stick around, kid. Not only are you on the management track here, but you can pivot to maybe do something funky, maybe something digital. We can get you on, you know, internet shorts or something. This was before Twitter was as big as it is right now. There wasn't anybody or anything internally to retain you? No, but I also didn't seek that out. Um, because in my mind, what I wanted to do was very specific. By that point, I knew that I wanted to cover national politics. I wanted to do it on television. At the time, for me to have gone from a producer or an editor on, at the time, it was weekend edition, Saturday and Sunday, to go from that to then covering politics for the politics desk at NPR, there was no real career path to do that. I mean, at the time, still, everything was very was very siloed in a way that it is not really anymore. And, you know, I knew that if I was going to do the kind of reporting that I'd sort of always envisioned myself doing, that it was going to require a, a major leap. And luckily, it all worked out. I mean, at the end of three years, because, again, for the unfamiliar, TV contracts tend to be three years. So at the end of my three years at New York One, I then went back to NPR. By that point, going back to NPR, covering uh, the White House and Congress as a reporter. And so it took, it was a lateral move in many ways. I mean, in some ways it was, in some ways it wasn't. But in terms of the reporting, you have, sometimes you have to go somewhere else to come back to do the work and you have to go somewhere else to prove what you can do and, and, to, and to actually have the work product. Um, before you're able to move on or move up. And so that, for me, was what um, taking that job was all about. Full disclosure, we're talking to PBS News Weekend anchor Jeff Bennett. Please do stay with us. Full disclosure podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and uh, recommend us to your mom. Uh, we are on NPR member station WVTF Radio IQ across the great Commonwealth. You could catch us on WERA in Arlington, Virginia, and in much of DC. We're in WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina, and out west on KPPQ in Ventura County. Holler if you too would like full disclosure on your air. If you are just joining us, we're joined again by Jeff Bennett. He is anchor of PBS News Weekend and also chief Washington correspondent for PBS NewsHour. You'd mentioned it, Jeff, that you went off, covered yourself in glory at uh, New York One. I remember one of your colleagues got into a spat with a corrupt New Jersey congressman or he threatened to push him off a balcony or something. I was like, <laughs> it was after a State of the Union. And of course, now I can't remember the congressman's name, but I think he did jail Listen, time. It was, he says, I was gonna, I'm gonna, if you ask the question, I'm going to punch you like a little boy or something. I was like, all right, Jeff, Jeff, how's that, how's that going? <laughs> caught up with you. But of course, you were there for three years. And I mean, did you really have to take a vow of poverty? Was there any upside in this as your face was being recognized across many of these cable affiliates as a as a Washington, D.C. fixture? Were you getting job offers? Well, the upside was exposure. And again, I remember... I mean, you were talking to Congress people. You were out there. You were in the ether. You had an unbelievable sizzle at this point because of the stuff you were doing. Yeah, you're right. And I think, you know, in addition to working for New York One, Time Warner Cable also had a footprint in Kentucky in Florida, 
in North Carolina, all major states in terms of politics. And so, you know, over the course of my reporting, I had a sit down interview with Mitch McConnell, who, as you know, doesn't do a lot of sit down interviews. Right. But he spoke with me because he saw me as local press. And uh, over the course of our conversation, he said of Donald Trump at the time, this is either 2015 or 2016, that he didn't view Donald Trump to be a serious candidate. And as you can imagine, that got picked up. And so that soundbite got played on CNN. It got played on MSNBC. And so that, for me, was affirming. That was one of those moments when sort of the universe saying, OK, this this is what the, you're kind of headed in the right direction here, that this professional and personal leap you made uh, to do this might be working out. And so from there, there was different kinds of exposure. Yes, interviewing members of Congress, uh, doing reporting that I thought was was worthwhile. I remember reporting on the Zadroga Act, which provided health care for 9-11 first responders. And because I was covering New York, that, of course, was a big story for us. And so I got to be first with that. And so getting that adrenaline rush of, of breaking news and seeing other... Did you meet Jon Stewart? I did meet Jon Stewart. I did meet, meet Jon Stewart, yeah. But, but with the Zadroga Act coverage, you know, it was one of those things where we'd report it first and then you'd see the New York Times match it and, or other major outlets match it. And so, you know, you can't, as a reporter, you can't beat that, especially um, when you're a local reporter and when you're covering stories that, that matter as much as ones like that did. Jeff, talk about what I I certainly felt as a cub reporter and um, a young aspiring journalist and journalists in moments of existential doubt always talk to me about imposter syndrome. I mean, we talked about that time you hired the, the, the cameraman and went down to Atlanta and you built yourself a tape in the absence of any you know discernible experience. But when you were talking to Mitch McConnell and other people, there's there also has to be this voice that's saying to yourself, what am I doing here? And even though every time you do these interviews and every time they get picked up by someone else, as you say, it is affirming. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think the advice that I would give to, to young journalists, aspiring journalists who might be listening to this is that if you are in the room, you deserve to be in the room. And I think one of the other ways to deal with any sort of imposter syndrome is to realize that you, especially if you're interviewing a member of Congress or a newsmaker, that you are there representing your audience, you're there representing the American people. It really is not about you. It's, it's about the ways in which you are a, a conduit to the viewing or listening public. And so, and it's important to keep that in mind because that framing, that sort of mental framing, I think it instructs the kind of questions that you ask. It instructs how you ask the questions. You realize that it's more important to, as we say, in the news media to go for light, not for heat. What that means is to not have sort of a performative approach where you're trying to throw gotcha questions at someone, but what you're really trying to do is to get to the bottom of, you know, why they have a certain view of things, you know, why they're pursuing a certain policy. Uh, and so th that's the way I think that people should, if they do encounter these situations where they might be the only person that looks like them in the room, or they might be fairly young, and yet they're doing all of these things that they thought they might be doing much further along in their career, uh, is to take yourself out of the equation. What did it feel like to be at uh, MAGA rallies as a person of color, covering this and having to keep a stiff upper lip? You know, it, there's that. And it was going to MAGA rallies and needing security. The idea that being a member of the working press, that that would necessitate having two undercover security guards. And it's, I wasn't the only one. Every major network by that point, by the end of, by, certainly by the end of his term, and even as he was do, still doing rallies, but by the end of the, the campaign cycle, we all had security, which was just, I mean, 
to even think of it now, it's, it's, it's hard to sort of get your head around. The other thing that people didn't necessarily pick up on, it's, it's hard to convey this on television, was the performative aspect of all of it. From Trump using the same call and response, from him saying things like, they won't move the camera in the back of the room to show how big this crowd is, or you know, the red light on the camera isn't blinking, the cameras aren't even on. By that point, by the time he was still saying this, he knew that the so-called pool camera in the back of the room doesn't move, that it's a fixed position straight ahead at the lectern. And that the idea that the reason why the photog wasn't moving the camera all around was because he was trying to stick it to Donald Trump, that just <laughs> there was no there was no basis for that. But even the, the call and response of him saying things to criticize CNN, all of that, it was so it was so performative. And I remember being at those rallies and people would say things like some of them would be like, oh, you know, we don't really mean it. But then on the other end, there would be people who would bring their kids over to the press pen, because remember, we were at these rallies. You we were cordoned off and protected. Yeah. yeah. They would bring their kids over uh, to point at us and say, you suck. You suck. I have never, I took a picture of it. I'll never forget it. A six-year-old pointing his finger at me because his dad told him to uh, scream, you suck. Is that, is that fascism? I mean, rose by any other name. This is what I, I, I mean, people branded as populism, as you know, fake CNN, the fake news and everything. There's definitely a playbook that worked here that I thought I read about theoretically in high school, but we witnessed it certainly in the four years of Trump and since. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing is that Trump was still, I mean, I haven't covered him actively over the last two years or so, but he was among the most self-aware politicians I've ever covered, especially in the sense that he knew when he was saying your fake news and all that stuff. He knew and even said in the early days, in the early days, he would come back uh, on Air Force One and talk to reporters off the record. And I can say this on the record now because it's been reported out. But he had told reporters early on, he'd say, you know, when you say things about me, I don't like um, when you criticize me, I'm going to say it's fake. You're not going to like that. But just just know that's the way it's going to be. And so, you know, he he knew he knew what he was doing. Certainly some of his supporters were sort of in on it and, and, and knew what it was all about. But I think the vast majority of his, his of his of his base and Republicans across the board um, bought into that, you know. And and so the other thing that was <laughs> was was um, striking was covering Trump rallies at the height of the pandemic with just an N95 and a prayer, hoping you don't get COVID. Yeah. And the reason I'm at a loss for words is because I've never really had to articulate what that was like. Um, but I will I will never forget the experience of covering rally after rally after rally all across this country from, I think, as far as Utah. I've been to some to, in Utah uh, to West Virginia. Now, Jeff, the mothership NPR brought you back for all of seven months in the year 2017, first as a congressional reporter and then as a White House reporter dealing with the Trump White House uh, in the summer and autumn of, of 2017. That was short live, but I wanted to get the impressions there of having agency and clout and your mindset then versus kind of when you were out West at NPR West and um, trying to trying to establish a name for yourself and trying to find a mentor. Here you were actually recruited. You were brought back, hopefully at a salary premium, hopefully at a kind of, we're consistent with where you want to be in your career. Right. Jeff. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. I, I made up for it. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was really great coming back to NPR in a reporting capacity. I credit Beth Donovan, who at the time headed up the Washington desk for that opportunity. She was a, a huge champion of mine. I think going back to NPR as a reporter, my, my primary focus, it was not at all about trying to make a name, as people say these days, build a brand, all that stuff. 
it was really about focusing on the on the reporting, given the ways in which NPR was respected for its political reporting. I wanted to, you know, first do no harm, <laughs> but add value where I could in covering the Hill and covering the White House. Because, you know, don't forget, this was the beginning of the Trump administration, where people were tuning in in ways that they hadn't tuned in for political coverage before. And so that was my my primary goal was to break news, but to also add context and depth and analysis wherever I could. And then boom, after all of seven months, you get the call from the Peacock. NBC News brings you in as White House correspondent and increasingly I see you substitute anchoring all over MSNBC. Yeah. And again, I think this is I often tell young journalists who are focused on career climbing. I think this is true of certainly young journalists these days who often feel like if they haven't achieved all their goals by the age of 25, that they're a failure, um, that if they're not an entry level CEO, that something didn't go right. <laughs> is that, you know, give up on the career climbing sometimes and just focus on the work and the work will lead you. And, and that's what I did at NPR. I was focused on the work. Different news organizations, TV news organizations asked me to come on as an analyst, which I did. And it was NBC that had me on the most. And over the course of those six or seven months where I was at NPR, but on NBC, MSNBC, with reporting and analysis and, and as a guest, it was after all of that that I got a call to come work for them full-time uh, covering the White House. Now, talk about hosting versus reporting. I mean, you I, it, it seems now at, at NewsHour, you really like to mix it up. You'd be on with a, a great singer or a great entertainer, obviously, in control of the whole thing on PBS News Weekend. Yeah, I think the best hosts, the best anchors are those who still report. You know, I say this about myself. I say this about people who I watch. I'm not as invested in those people who clearly just want to be a face on TV. I'm more invested in the people who still report and who still add value to the stories that they cover. And when you mentioned, you know, I, I interview everybody from authors to celebrities to politicians, that's because I think it's important to show, especially in a capacity where, you know, I am anchoring this weekend show now, to show the fullness of American life, especially in times when it seems like all of the headlines are more, more tortured and more terrible than the next, whether it's COVID or mass shootings or what's happening in Ukraine or the climate. You know, sometimes you just want to talk to Bonnie right, Raitt right. about her incredible career. <laughs> Bonnie Raitt, you know? And that is one of the great things about PBS, where you have the time and the space to do that. What about the evening news? What about PBS NewsHour? You know, full disclosure, I was a special correspondent several years ago. I appear uh, from time to time. I mean, there are doubts all about linear TV, left and right. And this goes back to your initial experience, what with AOL and everything, and before these many channels. Now, everybody, young or old, carries a very high-powered camcorder in her hands, and you can record yourself for NPR shows or report it live. The, the cost of doing this has kind of collapsed. There are very respectable journalists on Snapchat with millions of followers, people on direct channels. What can you tell us about the evening news? And this goes back to your observation about Carol as the first African-American woman to run an evening newscast back at ABC. Um, what does it mean today for our generation, for your cohort? You know, it's funny. I remember being an intern and Peter Jennings came to our intern group and he was asked, because even back then there was all sorts of hand-wringing about the future of the evening news, nightly news. And he said, well, I don't know what this show is going to look like in 10 years, but I can pretty much guarantee it's not going to be a half-hour format every night. Hmm. And this was probably back in, I don't know what, 2001, 2002. And now here sure. we are 20 years later. And it's still a, it's still a half hour format. 
I think in these days when, as you mentioned, everybody is a content creator, everyone seems to be an expert. That's certainly true on Twitter. Um, it makes the work that we do as, you know, classically trained journalists even more valuable. And when you add onto that a place like PBS NewsHour, where you have double the time of the big three networks to uh, report the news, I think there, it's just, I mean, that is the value proposition of public media, that people who are looking for authoritative reporting, looking for context and, and deeply reported stories, there's only really these days one or two places you can get it. You can get it from, you know, long form podcasts that are offered up by the New York Times, let's say, or you can get it from public media. And I, I just think, you know, it, it, it matters even more. It, it matters even more now. And I would also note that when people do have a million different options for where to get their news or not engage with the news at all, if that's what they choose, they choose to do. Um, the traditional institutions, the legacy institutions like PBS and like the big networks, the fact that they are still putting out these shows that are these broadcasts that are viewed by, I'd say, taken all together, 50 to 60 million people each night. You know, the news still matters. Full disclosure, stay with us. Jeff Bennett, in the 10 minutes or so we have left with you, Jeff Bennett is, of course, anchor of PBS News Weekend, chief Washington correspondent at PBS NewsHour. Uh, I'm sure Morehouse has brought you back to talk to students. What can you tell them now? It's a very different world from when you graduated and, and threw yourself into the crucible of early aughts Manhattan journalism. You don't. I don't believe you have to fetch coffee for the likes of the late Peter Jennings anymore. There are many new routes. I'm thinking about Brian Stelter, for example, at CNN and the New York Times, and how he was a prolific media blogger at Towson or some college and was plucked right by the New York Times for his capability. Mm-hmm. And and that, I think, can be really daunting, especially for younger journalists now, is because there are so many different pathways to arrive at whatever one's goal is. It often feels like you can imagine there's a lot of inertia that could set in because you don't know which which way to go. And, you know, if you do choose one path, are you actually choosing the longer route? <laughs> Uh, because, because again, you could, you could just start as an Instagram reporter or a TikTok reporter and catch someone's attention that way. Or you could go work at a small paper and work your way up. Who knows? I would say, and this is what I tell young journalists, um, that I've spoken to at Morehouse is that be as intentional as you can about your chosen career path. For me, I always knew I wanted to focus on national politics. So even that year that I did entertainment reporting, and I'm glad that I did because I knew it wasn't for me, I'd always knew that I was going to find my way back to Washington and to covering, if not the White House, then the Hill or, you know, one of the big agencies. of the Yeah. And that entertainment reporting year, you're using it when you interview the likes of Bonnie Raitt as uh, the face of PBS News Weekend. You know? That's right. That's right. And so, you know, if people don't know, if young, if young folks don't know exactly what they want to do, let knowing what you don't want to do be as equally as instructive. And again, you know, as people look for internships or for maybe full-time jobs, Certainly don't take anything that says, you know, we're going to pay you an exposure. We're not going to pay you a dime. You're just going to be able to use this byline. These days, that doesn't cut it. Make sure make sure that you are paid what you are due and for the value you bring to any organization. What does a New York Times or a Washington Post, I mean, I, I think about the, the giants that used to be the traditional pure play newspapers, the national newspapers. Now they are multimedia juggernauts. Clearly, the New York Times with the daily, with the podcast business that it has, it brings in Lulu Garcia Navarro from what is it, Weekend Edition to host 
it's opinion podcast. And if people are increasingly digital natives, if they're getting all this stuff on their tablets and iPhones right now, does it matter if uh, NewsHour is producing it or NBC News is producing it or the New York Times, which is a newspaper company, does incredible you know, 20-minute featurette documentaries and podcasts and long-form, deeply reported 5,000-word pieces? Does it, does it matter which outlet is producing it? I would say yes, in the sense that as a news consumer, it matters to me who produces this information because one, it has to be solid. It has to be um, well edited. You know, for instance, for people who might not be familiar, for me to report anything on any outlet, it has at least gone through two, one or two layers of vetting. And so in that way, it, it matters who is what what organization which which outlet is behind whatever content true but um you know morehouse morehouse graduated jeff bennett could now make a beeline to one of these gigantic publications could be one of the digital publications and say i could be this is and and to me it's the holy grail when i talk to journalism students is the inspector gadget i can cut audio i could film myself i can interview i can report i could do the digital areas that used to be intensely siloed just 5 or 6 years ago now the, the bare minimum demand is that you're able to do all of these things with a powerful smartphone. Yeah, that's true. I, of, I often look at the Jonathan Capehart model, who is what an associate editor for The Washington Post. He also anchors a show on MSNBC on Sunday mornings. On Fridays, he is an analyst on NewsHour. <laughs> and I'm sure there's some. Oh, and he also does stuff for The Washington Post Live. So in that way, he kind of has his foot in a number of different platforms, a number of different content creators or, you know, news news outlets. And I think that really is the future where, where people, you know, certainly people at, at his level are able to produce content for a number of different uh, outlets. Uh, close us out in the few minutes we have left. Are you eager to roll up your sleeves and cover 2022 and 2024? There seems to be uh, unanimity that, that Donald Trump is going to be coming back for the GOP nomination. Um, what are you feeling? What are you seeing out there? What's going to be different about this campaign? I think everything will be different about this campaign, in part because, to your point, Donald Trump has already said that you know he's made up his mind about running, and now it's just a matter of announcing when. And we also know that Mike Pence is likely going to run, regardless of what Donald Trump does or does not do. I think you know on the Republican side, Donald Trump's biggest threat is Ron DeSantis, given that DeSantis and Trump just tied in a recent New Hampshire poll of Republicans, which is unthinkable for that to have happened six months ago, a year ago, that any other Republican would-be presidential candidate would tie Donald Trump to sort of own the mantle of Trumpism. So there'll be all of that to cover on the Republican side. On the Democratic side, of course, you've seen these polls that show pluralities of Democratic voters say that you know while they might support Joe Biden, they don't necessarily want him to run again in 2024. That said, there does not seem to be another Democrat who can pull together a winning coalition in the way that he did in 2020. Um, we'll, we'll see between now and potentially. To your mind, to your mind, is Biden in worse shape now than he was, let's say, after the New Hampshire primaries where, where he was left for dead? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, gosh, I don't know. It, it, that would, I don't know. I, I will... He is still, he is still incumbent for what it's worth. Yeah, no, he he certainly is the incumbent. You do have the historic headwinds of him getting a shellacking in the in the 2022 midterms. midterms. That would suggest that with either one or two Republican chambers, that there will be no legislative agenda for him to run on in 2024. He will, of course, be, what, by then 80, 81 years old. Um, that will be difficult. I think he was helped immensely by the fact that the 2020 election 
was dominated by COVID, so he didn't have to travel as much. The reporters who were around him asking questions, they were the, the campaign knew who those folks were and they were the campaign was able to say, you know, at XYZ event, there will only be 10, rep- 10 reporters at this event, that kind of thing. Mm. So he was he was sort of shielded from what people like to say are the Biden gaffes. So I don't know. We'll see. But again, as as Joe Biden often says, President Biden often says, you know, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. So <laughs> if he's if he's running against Donald Trump again, there are, I think, even Republicans now who say uh, that they don't want to see Donald Trump. Can you really believe, though, Donald Trump as kingmaker, as being content, as magnanimous to step aside and say, you know what, even if I created Ron DeSantis and he beat Andrew Gillum for by less than a point in Florida, that, you know, my time is up and I could have more power. As I, can, can you imagine that? Can you imagine him resisting the rallies and showing up at the, the Republican nominating convention in 2024 and saying DeSantis is your man? Oh, no, I can't ever imagine that. I can't imagine anyone. I can't imagine Donald Trump letting anyone carry the mantle of Trumpism. If, if, if not him, then no one, which is one of the reasons why the reporting suggests that he would throw his hat into the ring fairly early, which is to freeze to freeze the field. But if right wing media sours on him and it's early reports indicate that Fox News is, for instance, they didn't show his his speech the other day here in Washington, D.C., yet they showed part of uh, Vice President, former Vice President Mike Pence's speech. Without the Republican, without the conservative ecosphere, the conservative media ecosphere, with more damning revelations from the January 6th committee, with a potential DOJ investigation ramping up, it might be beyond him that even if he still wants to run and still wants to be wants to be the candidate instead of Kingmaker, uh, that the the party and that the electoral wins uh, might carry him off a little bit. Jeff Bennett, anchor of PBS News Weekend. Good guys do get ahead. We were telling the story of uh, your your less than ten year journey from, you know, on a wing and a prayer to Time Warner Cable, up back through NPR and NBC News, and now host of PBS News Weekend and on to great things, sir. It is always a joy to have you on the show. Come back. Great to talk with you as always, Robin. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly and multimedia producer Evan Hunter. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. You can subscribe, rate us, and recommend us to mom and dad. Follow on Twitter, Insta, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle fulldradio. And you can catch me weekly on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. 